Welcome to Holistic Wellness, a podcast exploring the science and metaphysics of health and wellness. I'm your host, Brandi Searcy, founder and formulator at Rain Organica, where you'll find holistic skincare in one simple routine. Early on in today's episode, you might hear my dog snuffling into the uh, audio. He helps me record each episode. Uh, So just in case you're wondering what that noise is, that's my snuffleupagus. Have you ever had your vitamin D levels checked? especially during the summertime, found they were low and been a little perplexed as to why. This has happened to me and it really got me wondering why in the summertime were my vitamin D levels touching the bottom end of normal when uh, they'd been checked maybe a year before in the wintertime or a year and a half before in the wintertime and been right in the meaty middle. So that is part of what is prompting today's conversation around vitamin D. The other part of it, of course, is vitamin D and sunlight. And as we're approaching spring and thinking about summer already, uh, it's one of the great, it's one of the, it's definitely in the top five questions I feel like I'm asked as uh, somebody in the skincare industry is how much does sunscreen really influence your body's ability to make its own vitamin D? And today we're going to talk through both of these questions. Um, and just a forewarning, you'll likely walk away from today's conversation with more questions than you have answers. Part of the reason for the confusion when it comes to vitamin D and kind of the lack of knowing which direction is the healthiest direction comes into play because there are two, there are two uh, largely conflicting views. So on the one hand, you have Dr. Michael Hollick, who is very much the uh, considered, I think, the father of vitamin D. And again, he's the one that, um, As we get into the show a little bit more, I'll share how he's discovered some of the vitamin D metabolites, some of the metabolic pathways for vitamin D conversion within your body. And he's also attributed to being the voice behind increasing vitamin D levels. And on the other hand, you have Morley Robbins who is saying, we don't really have any data on, or in other words, why aren't we testing active vitamin D rather than the storage form of vitamin D? Why isn't that a consideration on blood tests and why aren't we tracking it rather than a storage form of vitamin D? And then um, there's merit to both sides. So first of all, when we follow the money, Dr. Michael Hollick has made a tremendous amount of money off uh, his work with vitamin D and his um, promotion of more of us needing more vitamin D. And when we follow the money, Morley Robbins 
has a book called The Great Deception, where he's also talking about the dangers of vitamin D and of, being, of having too much vitamin D in your system. So the money trail leads us in both directions, which means we need to take a step back and see where the facts take us. And this one is more difficult because while there is abundant research um, and independent of Dr. Michael Hollick, meaning he is not the one that was involved in the research in these studies, even if he is cited in the studies, he's not the one that was actually involved in the in carrying out the execution of the study itself. So while there's abundant research um, evaluating the concentration of the storage form of vitamin D, which is um, in your body, sorry, I completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> okay, while there's abundant research, um, so I'll, yeah, let's, let's just start, let's take a step back. So while there's abundant research out there evaluating the storage form of vitamin D in relation to a variety of diseases, and really it's kind of a mixed bag. In some cases it helps, in some cases it doesn't seem to help. Um, I think sometimes it, it may hurt. Uh, this is something we'll talk a little bit more about in the episode as well. Um, so you've kind of got a mixed bag. At least you have something. When it comes to looking at the active form of vitamin D and its relation to disease, so looking at the concentration of the active form of vitamin D, um, it, which again is called... Is, um, calcitriol, and we'll, we'll talk all about this as we get into the episode today. When it comes to looking at the active form of vitamin D in relation to uh, a variety of diseases, there's just, there's essentially no data. There's like very little research um, being done where they're tracking the active form of vitamin D. So this is where, in relation to disease, so this is where um, we don't have the data to draw the conclusions. And this um, is also why it's so hard to recommend vitamin D because like there's a huge ocean that is unexplored when it comes to uh, vitamin D and your health. So one more thing before we get into the main body of today's episode. One, probably my biggest pet peeve is when a researcher gives a hypothesis and it's a very solid sounding hypothesis and then they support it with some crackpot theories. And Morley Robbins does this with his vitamin D, uh, with his work in vitamin D. And the way that he does this, the, the biggest way is by claiming that vitamin D that is made in your body, so through your skin, is water soluble, whereas the vitamin D that you take in a supplement is not, and that is BS. It's the exact same vitamin D. It's the exact same form of vitamin D being made in your skin, it's cholecalciferol, as it is in most vitamin D supplements, again, cholecalciferol. So 
And also, and I'll dive into this a little more in the episode as well, because again, this is my pet peeve is using disinformation to back what could be a very valid hypothesis. Um, no form of vitamin D is soluble in water. Okay, so enough of me on my soapbox. Um, I'll get off now and let's get into the body of today's episode. So what is vitamin D for anyway? Well, it's needed for proper absorption of calcium and phosphorus and proper distribution of those two minerals into your body's bones. Now, vitamin D isn't the only vitamin that's responsible for this. Vitamin K also plays a huge role and vitamin K is a vitamin that we never, ever, 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 ever talk about. Um, but anyways, that's the topic for a different day, a different time. And for today, we'll focus on vitamin D. A variety of studies show that sufficient vitamin D levels are associated with a reduced inflammation in the gut among people with celiac disease, also associated with a reduced risk of flares when you have an autoimmune condition such as rheumatoid, multiple sclerosis, lupus, yeah, any of those. And sufficient vitamin D levels are also associated with lower blood pressure. Now, just because, um, of course, vitamin sufficient levels of vitamin D are associated with these optimal uh, conditions when you have a condition, it doesn't necessarily mean that sufficient vitamin D is why you have reduced inflammation when you have celiac or why you have lower blood pressure. It could be a cause of lower blood pressure and a better outcome uh, with celiac or other autoimmune disease. Now, vitamin D is being explored in its ability to reduce cancer risk and improve the odds of positive outcomes for cancer treatment. And it's being explored across a whole range of different cancers. The ones with kind of the most promising data or the most, um, the data that shows that there's at least a positive correlation is breast cancer and colorectal cancer. And again, at this point, it's not really possible to tease out um, what this means or what this looks like because the data is still very much coming in and there are uh, contradictory studies even in those um, even in those two categories. Definitely more so it's a little more of a mixed bag in some other cancers such as lung cancer. Now vitamin D analogs are prescribed in the treatment of plaque psoriasis, specifically the active form of vitamin D, which is 1-alpha-25-dihydroxy vitamin D, um, is useful in treating plaque psoriasis. So what is sufficient levels of vitamin D? The standard quote-unquote normal range for vitamin D is between 20 and 50 nanograms per mil, and of course this is measured in blood, and less than 12 nanograms per mil in your blood is considered deficient. Um, We'll talk about what form of vitamin D is measured a little later on in this episode. We'll keep going here. So like everything, ideally you'd want your vitamin D levels to be in the middle of that meaty range. However, um, this also depends on your skin color. So for darker skinned people, harm from vitamin D appears to happen at a lower vitamin D level than it does for lighter skinned people. So if you have dark skin, you may actually want to be in the lower end of that range for optimal health. Now, 
disclaimer, of course, I am not a doctor. I am not your doctor. I am in, I am not a qualified medical expert. So take this with a grain of salt. This is all given for informational purposes only. Explore this for yourself. Consult your own doctor or physician or healthcare practitioner or healthcare counselor. That could be yourself. Um, but it's definitely not me. <laughs> so get it pulling back into the conversation now after we've had that disclaimer. There's also extreme controversy around what sufficient levels are. And Dr. Michael Hollick is an extremely controversial figure in the world of vitamin D. Um, his research has been invaluable. So first of all, I'd like to give credit where credit is due. And his research has been invaluable in uncovering vitamin D metabolites and um, in his work in elucidating the vitamin D metabolic pathway within our bodies. Um, however, he is a highly controversial figure and highly controversial claims on what sufficient levels of vitamin D are. And he, of course, prefers higher levels. Um, now, what happens if your vitamin D levels are too high? Well, it can result in decalcification of bones and lead to calcification of arteries, deposition of calcium in the soft tissues of the body. So this is definitely not something you want. Cholecalciferol, which is also known as vitamin D3, and it is the most common um, form of vitamin D sold in sold as supplements. It's also a common rat poison. And yes, uh, rats require different levels of vitamin D than humans do. When rats eat too much vitamin D in the poison pellet, what kills them is essentially hypervitaminosis D or vitamin D toxicity. And the cause of death is typically bleeding out due to the extreme anticoagulant nature of a hypervitaminosis D state. So vitamin K, which again is a vitamin you likely haven't heard much about, counters the anticoagulant effect of vitamin D and it also encourages redeposition of calcium into the bones as opposed to into the soft tissues. So again, there is balance between vitamin D and vitamin K and their actions and uh, calcification of your bones versus calcification of your soft tissues, which is not wanted. So while today's conversation is intended to provide insight, of course, into vitamin D and your health, this is an excellent time to point out the obvious. Please, do not use rat poisons of any sort, regardless of which type of rat poison you choose, creatures higher up the food chain suffer. And this includes birds of prey, like owls and hawks and well, eagles and falcons and all the other birds of prey. It includes animals like coyotes. Um, it includes your dog. Uh, it's, I was at the vet a couple of weeks ago with my own dog and there happened to be another dog in the ICU unit who'd eaten rat poison. And it was one of these vitamin D, one of these colocalciferol uh, rat poisons. And of course they were treating the dog with vitamin K to counter that. And the dog had had to receive some blood transfusions as well. So again, um, if for dealing with mouse and rat infestations, please head over to today's link, um, today's show notes for a link to recommended deterrents and controls. In humans, now we can circle back around to health of 
humans. Um, so in humans, early symptoms of vitamin D toxicity include loss of appetite, nausea and vomiting, extreme thirst, weakness, nervousness, and eventually high blood pressure due to calcium deposits within blood vessels. These symptoms are synonymous with those of hypercalcemia because again, vitamin D toxicity encourages demineralization of bone and deposition of the calcium from bone into blood vessels. Typically, um, you're all, typically like sites claim that you're only at risk for becoming vitamin D intoxicated when you're taking very high doses of vitamin D daily for months on end. The recommended daily allowance or RDA for vitamin D is 400 IU. So IU is international units and translated 400 IU is the equivalent of 10 micrograms of vitamin D per day for children. 600 IU, which is the equivalent of 15 micrograms vitamin D per day for adults and 800 international units, which is the equivalent of 20 micrograms for people over the age of 70. Now, some vitamin D supplements are as high as 10,000 IU. And it's at concentrations above this level daily that become potentially problematic with regards to acute toxicity. And the Merck manual notes that taking high, taking very high daily doses of vitamin D, for example, 50 or more times the recommended daily allowance over several months can cause toxicity and a high calcium level in the blood. So again, result in hypercalcemia. As a general rule though, um, if you're taking significantly more vitamin D than the RDA and your vitamin D levels are still low, it's time to ask why. Now for the juicy part of the conversation. Let's spend just a minute talking about the vitamin D metabolic pathway. So in humans, 7-dehydrocholesterol is present in the upper layers of your skin, and this gets converted into pre-vitamin D in the presence of UVB rays from sunlight. It's then further, so that pre-vitamin D3 is then further converted in the lower layers of your skin to vitamin D3, which is also known as cholecalciferol. So cholecalciferol is the type of vitamin D that's present in food sources um, from animals, and it's also, of course, what gets made in your skin. Um, and it's also the most common supplement. Uh, oh, what do I want to say? Like form of vitamin D in, in supplements. And this differs from the type of vitamin D that is in plant sources. So the type of vitamin D that's present in plant sources is vitamin D2. So this is ergo calciferol instead of cola calciferol. Um, regardless of whether you get the cholecalciferol or the ergocalciferol and regardless of whether you're getting that from a food source or making it yourself in your skin, once it's transported into the liver, your liver converts the cholecalciferol. So again, the, that's synonymous with vitamin D3 or um, uh, it could be vitamin D2, the ergocalciferol if it's coming from plants. Either one of those gets converted into 25-hydroxy vitamin D3, also known as calcidiol in your liver. And this is the circulating form of vitamin D in your body. So 25-hydroxy vitamin D3 is then further converted in your kidneys to 1-alpha 25-dihydroxy vitamin D3, 
also known as calcitriol. And this is the active form of vitamin D in your body. So 25-hydroxyvitamin D3 is the circulating form, also known as the storage form of vitamin D. And 25, uh, sorry, 1-alpha, 25-dihydroxyvitamin D3 is the active form. So we're now <laughs> um, taking, a, taking a side note here so I can get up on a soapbox for just a second. Regardless of its form, okay, regardless of its form, vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin. Vitamin D3, so again, what's made in your skin, that cholecalciferol, is the most fat-soluble so it has the lowest solubility in water at 0.02 micrograms per milliliter. The storage form, circulating form of um, D, which again is 25-hydroxy vitamin D3, also known as um, calcidiol, is about 0.11 micrograms per milliliter. So it's about five-fold more soluble in water than vitamin D3. The solubility of the active form of vitamin D. So again, that is the 1-alpha 25-hydroxy vitamin D3, also known as calcitriol, is about seven micrograms per milliliter or about 350-fold more soluble in water than vitamin D3. However, seven micrograms per milliliter is kind of the, let's see, seven mils, it's kind of the equivalent of a teaspoon in a liter of water. So it's not very soluble. To give you an idea of how soluble this really is, I mean, this is kind of like saying hot oil is soluble in hot water. Um, and since we're talking about oil, I pulled up just one reference article because I didn't want to spend a whole lot of time on this because this is insane that some people are claiming that the active form of vitamin D is water soluble, it is not. Um, but to give you an idea of just how soluble this really is, again, this one article that I pulled up on the solubility of oil and water is that oil is about, is soluble in water to the extent of about 100 micrograms per milliliter. And that is 14 fold more soluble in water than the active form of vitamin D that calcitriol. So it's not soluble in water, regardless of its form. Um, for blood test, 25-hydroxy vitamin D, um, aka I, I dropped the three. So 25-hydroxy vitamin D3, which again is the circulating form of vitamin D or the storage form of vitamin D, is measured on a blood test rather than the active form of vitamin D, which again is 1-alpha 25-dihydroxy vitamin D. 25-hydroxy vitamin D has a half-life of about 15 days, whereas calcitriol, again, the, the active form, the 1-alpha-25-dihydroxy vitamin D, has a half-life of about five to eight hours. Now, you, when you look this up for yourself, um, you'll find references that say, you'll, you'll find some um, you'll find ranges on this. Some, the one site that I reference says 15 days. Another paper that I found said 25 days for the calcidiol. Again, that's the circulating or storage form of vitamin D. 
regardless, the point of this is that for calcitriol, the active, we're talking a half-life of hours. And for calcidiol, the circulating form, we're talking many days, like at around half a month or more. Um, so why aren't calcitriol levels, which again are the active form of vitamin D, why aren't they checked on blood tests instead of your circulating or storage levels of vitamin D? This is a great question. I don't have the answer for that one. Let's talk about food sources of vitamin D. So natural vegan sources of vitamin D are extremely hard to find. Um, mushrooms that are grown in sunlight or under UV light have the highest content for any plant. And the, the, so when they're grown under UV light, they, mushrooms can contain up to 1,100 international units per three and a half ounce serving. And they are the only plant source that contains significant levels of vitamin D. So of course the problem with mushrooms is that often when you buy them, you have no idea whether they were grown in the light or in the dark. Um, so if you're vegan, um, ample amounts of sunlight or foods that are fortified with vitamin D are your best choices of this vitamin are your best sources for this vitamin. And we'll talk, we'll talk a little, in a little bit detail later about assuming that you want to supplement with vitamin D. Anyways, um, commonly fortified foods include cereals, orange juice, and plant-based milks. Now, if you're vegetarian, pescatarian, um, or of course just consume meat, then your dietary sources of vitamin D would include cod liver oil, which has 1,360 IU in one tablespoon, sockeye salmon at 815 IU in a three and a half ounce serving, and sardines at 330 IU in a three and a half ounce serving. If you're relying on sunlight, how much sun exposure do you need for vitamin D synthesis? Well, this depends on your age, your gender, your complexion, where you live, and the season. So many variables, right? So your skin requires UVB, and this is the type of UV rays that are most commonly blocked by sunscreen. So, of course, this is my opportunity to get on my other soapbox about sunscreen. Um, <laughs> so your skin requires UVB to create vitamin D3. Again, that's the cholecalciferol from the seven hydroxy, seven dehydroxy, I'll get it right in a minute, from the seven dehydrocores, cholesterol, goodness. Um, melanin reduces vitamin D conversion in your skin. So darker skinned people generally need to spend longer in sunlight each day to generate the same level of vitamin D3 as lighter skinned people. However, this goes back to that previous comment where it looks like darker skinned people likely don't need as much vitamin D for optimal health as lighter skinned people. How much does melanin influence your vitamin D conversion rate? Well, one study found that melanin has an inhibition factor of about 1.4 for vitamin D3 conversion from 7-D hydrocholesterol. 
And that study is linked in today's show notes. Correctly applied sunscreen can reduce vitamin D synthesis or vitamin D um, conversion, I, sh I should say creation, by more than 90%. So that's huge. It means you're basically not making um, vitamin D in the presence when you're wearing sunscreen. So because UVB rays are also blocked by windows, you really need to be outside to absorb those rays and not wearing sunscreen. Now, the good news is that your body self-regulates so that you don't, so that basically there's not an opportunity to overdose on sunlight when it comes to vitamin D synthesis. Now there's, of course, a there's of course the possibility to reduce on sunlight for other reasons, but vitamin D um, synthesis or vitamin D creation is not um, one of those because your body will self-regulate how much of um, the cholecalciferol that you're actually making. So what conditions increase your risk of being vitamin D deficient? Well, of course, following a vegan diet. Um, also, it turns out that your gut microbiome is extremely important to so even though um, 25 hydroxyvitamin D is largely made in your liver, and of course the 125, the one alpha 25 dehydroxy, di, sorry, dihydroxyvitamin D is largely made in your kidneys, um, it turns out that your many of the bacteria living in your gut can also contribute to vitamin D synthesis and help absorb vitamin D from the foods that you eat. So help absorb that cholecalciferol from the foods that you eat or the ergocalciferol if it's uh, you have to get some light grown mushrooms. Um, so when you have inflammatory, when you have anything basically that any kind of inflammatory bowel disease in here, I'm not just talking IBD. I'm also talking ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, any other condition that disrupts your normal fat digestion and also the absorption of um of nourishment from your GI tract, then you are at risk of being deficient in vitamin D. And so for that reason, well, we'll talk about it. We'll talk a little bit more about that here in a minute. And then lastly, um, if you're obese, so vitamin D is fat soluble, which means that it accumulates in fat tissue, and then it's not easily released um, from the fat tissue later when it's needed by your body. So the other thing is vitamin D deficiency is linked to chronic liver disease. This is especially noteworthy because 25 hydroxy vitamin D, again, the calcidiol, um, and in particular, the kind of vitamin D that's measured on a blood test is synthesized in your liver. And, um, Low vitamin D levels in bone disease are well-recognized complications of cholestatic liver disease. And this is basically any liver condition that causes impaired bowel production or impaired um, bile flow. So this, of course, is also linked to a sluggish gallbladder, a congested gallbladder, a lack of a gallbladder. Um, calcidiol, which again is the circulating or storage form of vitamin D, is available in 20 is typically available in 25 and 50 microgram capsules. Uh, you may need a prescription for this because this is not cholecalciferol, this is calcidiol. Um, it may be prescribed or recommended for people with liver disease. 
again, 25 hydroxy vitamin D3 or the calcidiol is the circulating form of vitamin D and the active form one alpha 25 dihydroxy vitamin D is also available. However, that one needs to be really closely monitored if you're prescribed that because uh, there is an increased risk of hypercalcemia with calcitriol. And calcitriol might, it likely is only recommended for those with severe kidney deficiency. Um, because again, the, the uh, kidneys are responsible for that final conversion from the calcidiol to calcitriol. So why is it important that your liver converts vitamin D? Uh, like, why is it important to know, to know that your liver converts vitamin D um, or the cholecalciferol into uh, calcidiol? Well, if your blood tests are low, and especially if you're supplementing with cholecalciferol, or vitamin D3, then it may indicate something's going on with your liver. However, <laughs> the good news is it may not because there's even more to the story than that. Vitamin D is often low when your C-reactive protein levels are high. C-reactive protein is typically high either when there's acute inf inflammation in your body, um, such as when you're fighting off an infection, um, CRP is also high in the instance of chronic inflammation. So think autoimmune condition and it's also uh, high in heart disease. So low 25 hydroxy vitamin D might just indicate that you're fighting infection or stress or that you're actively in a flare up of an autoimmune condition. One more possibility is this. For all of these conversions, so from the conversion of the cholecalciferol to the uh, calcidiol to the calcitriol, magnesium is needed for each of those enzymatic reactions. And magnesium deficiency is especially common in the population at large today due to depleted soils and depleted souls. Um, so both the fact that we're not getting the same amount of magnesium in our diets, even if we have the same diet that our grandparents did because the soils are depleted and the fact that we lead in general, more stressful lifestyles than our grandparents led, um, deplete magnesium within your body. And in Haynes study, showed that high dietary intake of magnesium reduced the risk of vitamin D deficiency in the general population. That's how profound supplementing with magnesium could be for your own vitamin D levels. So it may not be the fact that you are vitamin D deficient. It may be that you're magnesium deficient. Magnesium also plays a role in your body's immunocompetence and adaptive immunity. Um, and of course, part of the reason for both of those is that magnesium influences the activity of vitamin D metabolites. However, that's far from the only reason. The RDA of magnesium for men is about 410 mg per day. For women, it's about 315 mg per day. 
And studies estimate that food sources of magnesium have about 25% to 80% of, this, of the magnesium levels that they had prior to 1950. Regardless, if you're looking for a few foods that are rich in magnesium, your best choices are pumpkin seed kernels, pumpkin seeds and shells, dry roasted almonds, boiled spinach, dry roasted cashews, oil roasted peanuts, black beans, Sheldon Cook Anabame, and dark chocolate. And head to the link in today's um, show notes for levels of those. Basically, it's between 50 and 170 megs of magnesium per serving for those. If you have low blood levels of, of vitamin D, and again, that's measured as calcidiol, have you done anything to boost your vitamin D levels? Like specifically, are you spending more time in sunlight? And have you added a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine? And if you have, are either of those things working to boost your vitamin D levels? If they're not, then it's definitely time to consider how's your stress level? Are you actively overcoming an infection of some sort or are you experiencing any allergies? Do you have an autoimmune condition? And if so, are you in a flare? And this one's, this one's hard because sometimes, um, a flare is associated with, this, with symptoms. So thinking something like MS, and sometimes you're just in a state kind of of a constant flare. And here I'm thinking Hashimoto's because of course your anti-TPO levels are likely high um, regardless of whether you're experiencing symptoms or not. So that one's a little bit difficult. Um, I would say anytime that your blood levels are showing that there's active disease state, then you're in a flare, um, even if it doesn't, even if you're not experiencing outward symptoms associated with that. And then the last thing of this is it's definitely time to consider and take a look at your daily magnesium intake. One more great way, and this is total plug for Rain Organica, um, one more great way to get more magnesium into your body is to soak in Epsom salts. And Rain Organica offers two amazing bath soaks. And here, even if you don't take baths, um, consider a foot soak. Um, these bath soaks make incredible foot soaks. I know because I do it a few times a week. So both are uh, the first ingredient, of course, is Epsom salts. And they also contain Himalayan sea salt, which is rich in magnesium along with other trace minerals. And uh, in addition to that, the two, the, so the two bath soaks kind of diverge from there. One is lavender and chamomile buds and licorice and marshmallow. And then the other one is rose petals and orange peel and licorice root and marshmallows. And um, both have metafoam seed oil. And then there are a couple of other ingredients that differ between the two. But anyways, um, I digress. Boosting your magnesium reserves is an excellent way to help your body manage stress and inflammation, regardless of the cause. And as a side effect, of course, you may also boost your vitamin D levels. 
So with this, so with this episode, we talked about quite a few things. So we talked about what the metabolic pathway for vitamin D looks like in your body. Um, one of the things that um, I forgot to mention in the body of the episode is the fact that vitamin D really is a hormone instead of a vitamin, or it can be thought of as a hormone instead of a vitamin. I mean, it's something that your body can produce naturally. Um, and considering it's not that it's impossible to get from food. However, there are very limited uh, ways of getting it from food. And with that, just thinking back to our ancestors, they likely were getting it from sun exposure. Um, and so this isn't necessarily a plug to, this isn't necessarily a statement saying maybe we shouldn't be supplementing with vitamin D. This is an opportunity to explore just how different our lives are from our ancestors and figure out what changes perhaps would be um, would be worth exploring in order to adapt a life kind of more similar to theirs so that we can do what our body was made to do, which is produce its own vitamin D. Um, and of course, in the absence of that, because let's be real, we live in the world and in the wintertime, it is quite difficult to get out in sunlight for enough, for long enough um, on those days. So perhaps worth exploring more some of these ways of boosting vitamin D in the wintertime, whether that's through vitamin D supplementation, whether that's by looking at your gut microbiome, um, including more diverse probiotics in your daily routine, taking a look at where antibiotics might be entering your food um, daily, so entering your diet daily. Uh, also, taking a look at your magnesium levels, because again, that enhanced study found that just by addressing magnesium levels, they were able to boost um, the people in the people evaluated in that study had elevated levels of vitamin D as well. So taking a look at that, like this is a serious consideration and perhaps a missing link. So um, again, there are still a few outstanding questions, even at the end of today's episode, because I, in my mind, one of the biggest is, why is uh, the circulating or the storage form of vitamin D measured on blood tests as opposed to the active form of vitamin D? And just because we're seeing all these correlations, almost inverse correlations between the storage form of vitamin D and different health conditions, what does that look like if we were to look at the active form of vitamin D instead in relation to those health conditions? And I don't have the answer for those today. So um, in short or in summary, we're even with the extra questions that I just don't have answers for you today for, I really hope that this has provided some insight into the complexity, um, around vitamin D and the complexity of this seemingly simple conversation. Um, and as always, if you know anybody who might benefit from today's conversation, so whether that's somebody who's taking vitamin D um, because their blood levels are low or somebody who's concerned about their vitamin D levels, 
go ahead and just take a quick second and hit the share button, send this link over to them. And um, while you're at it, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. So I'm a little hesitant to reveal what's up next because I'm thinking that um, the order might change to give you an idea of the topics that are up um, that are up next on the show. Again, just please please be aware that the order might change. We'll be talking about preservatives and skincare. So that involves looking at the regulations here in the U.S. versus the regulations in other countries, especially the EU. And um, then we'll be talking about glyphosate in and its use in all kinds of crops, um, including why I don't drink oat milk. And then we'll be um, also taking a look at modern day wheat versus ancient wheat and what that means for celiac disease and gluten sensitivity. So be sure again to subscribe to the podcast, share this episode with somebody who might benefit from it. And if you could take a quick second to leave a review of the podcast, that helps so much with getting the word out. And uh, I, of course, would be eternally grateful. All right. Until next time. Bye.